Hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, playerettes, doo doo everybody in between. Welcome back. This is the follow-on episode to last week uh, with Rick Prado on the uh, 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Um, we had a theme going here. We wanted to follow through on this next theme, and we'll tell you about that here in just a second. But first of all, welcome. Um, as always, I'm here. I'm Morgan. I'm here literally with my partner in crime. Yo, y'all, it's Murph. And we're going to do what we did last time. I know some of you guys like small town police water, but we just couldn't bring ourselves to to do that when we're talking about something as serious as, you know, when we talked about 9-11. And then this month we're talking with Eric McBride. He retired as the chief of police in San Bernardino City. If you guys remember, Alex Collins we had on was a deputy with San Bernardino County. His uh, partner was killed, um, Jamie McBride. He was wounded by a piece of shit. We don't even want to mention his name. Um, and But this is, we're going to, we're getting into now the December 2015 terrorist attack at the city of San Bernardino. Uh, 14 people killed, I think 27 wounded. And it's just, it just didn't seem right to follow on. You know, we wanted, we have, we wanted to have a couple serious discussions. So um, that's kind of what it was. So before we get started though, just a couple quick things, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you thought of last week's episode. Let us know what you think of this week's episode. And don't worry, folks, next week we'll get back into small town police blotter. Um, also head on over to our website, gamecrimespodcast.com, our book from our prior guest, Rick Prado. You'll see that up there, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Um, great reading. You just got to get it. We've got everything you need there. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But follow us on Patreon too, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just recorded some great episodes. You can't make this shit up. We've got 911, Case of the Month. Uh, one, one rule we made is Murph never gets to pick a movie again. He has to submit it for review before we review it. <laughs> I promise to do better in the future. <laughs> you will, because you're on the hook for next month. All right. But you know, guys, we have a lot of good stuff over there. Everything about, um, you know, we get into funny stuff. We get into serious stuff. Our case of the month has been recommended by you, the the listeners out there. So head on over there, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Now, this is a show about crime. We normally are fun and jovial because this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously and that's how we're going to do it. This is not about us having fun and joking at the expense of a serious incident like this. So right. uh, Murph, our next guest, Aaron McBride, like we said, retired as the chief of police, uh, worked his way up from patrol officer, but started off as a Marine, um, uh, formerly on active duty. He's got some good stories there, but he, he comes to us through another long list of people, uh, a family of service, the McBrides, out in California. He does. Uh, you know, our, our good buddy out in San Diego, Mel Sosa, uh, made an introduction for us, got us to, uh, to Eric. But the McBride family is well-known in the law enforcement circles out there. His brother Jamie, uh, his niece Tony, and then uh, Jamie's other daughter are all police officers out there that have experienced violence that, uh, you know what, most cops in the United States don't have to experience. I'm not sure what's going on with the McBride family here, but you know what? They don't shy away from it and they don't run away. They address the issues as they come to them and they're protecting their communities. Uh, Eric here was just uh, the fact that, I mean, he's a, he's a trendsetter. You're going to hear him talk about his high school career, getting out of high school early so he could join the Marine Corps early. His whole life is service to his community and his fellow man. And, you know, in my book, there's no greater calling that you're willing to dedicate your life to work for the public. A public servant, I think, is a is a term of a, of a hero, and that's certainly who we have on here today. And I'll tell you uh, again, we got to thank our buddies out there, Southern California Gang Conference, Mel Sosa, all of those people. They're brothers to us. Uh, they get us great gifts, uh, great gifts, great guests, which are gifts. Mm. 
for things like this. And I'll tell you, you you've really got to sit down and listen to this because one of the things that's going to come out of this is stuff that has not really been talked about in the media before. And you'll hear him talk about a call that was received. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been briefing this to law enforcement on the day of, he was the quote deputy incident commander, but he was the incident commander for all intents and purposes. Right. And so he's not the one at the tip of the spear out there, but this guy has the overview of everything going on. You're going to hear things that went well. You're going to hear about things that didn't go so well, but we will never get to hearing any of this, Murph, unless I ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, and as we see in this episode, too, the most dangerous game of all, the game of crime? Absolutely. So everybody get in, sit down, shut up, hold on. You're getting ready to hear a story about an incident that I wasn't even aware of, a terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California. So Eric, tell us what's going on, brother. All right, you guys, you players, you playerettes, do do that, amigos, amigos, everybody out there in between. Hey, we've got part of a family affair going on here because the name McBride is synonymous with several things from you know one part of the country to the other. But we've got Eric McBride here. We did a good intro with you, uh, Eric. But um, hey, first of all, welcome, my friend, to Game of Crimes. Thank you. That's and it. You can Thank see you. he's a man of like many words. To be here. You guys Happy are to studs. be here. Glad to be here. <laughs> this is outstanding. I, you know, I love to be here. <laughs> uh, he's, he's still hadn't quite figured us out yet, Morgan. He's like, who are these two guys? I'm, I'm still a little starstruck. I don't know. You know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. No, no autographs, please, and no pictures. Right. We'll, right. we'll talk about that later. Yeah. yeah. Hey, dude, well, we actually caught you when we turned this on. I looked, it's like you're at a training session somewhere, and I looked at your unmade bed. I'm going, that would never stand. Weren't weren't you a Marine formerly on active duty? I, I was. I spent six and a half years in the Marines. Yep. So why is your bed unmade, Marine? Oh, you know what? That, that seems like the further I get away from the Marine Corps, the less and less of those habits that I, that I lose. You're <laughs> able to get rid of them, right? Yep. <laughs> Well, hey, well, this is me saluting you. My uh, son-in-law was a Marine formerly on active duty. He actually served in the second Gulf War under Mattis. Uh, he was over in Afghanistan. So, um, But we're going to talk about that. But as we do with everybody, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. How did you get started in this thing of ours? Were you like hanging around one day and uh, uh, you know you just decided to shoplift some stuff and the cops arrested and you thought, hey, I'd rather do that than go to jail, which you won't do these days. But back right. then we used to go to right. jail for that stuff. You know, I didn't uh, necessarily grow up in a in a family of cops. Um, you know, my, uh, my dad, neither of my parents graduated high school. My dad was a truck driver and I do have some family legacy on my mother's side, on my maternal grandmother's side that, that were police chiefs and the last frontier U S marshal in California and so forth and so on. But my oh, interest, whoa, whoa, whoa. don't, no, 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 no. You don't skip past that. The last frontier marshal <laughs> and so on, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Whoa. Wait a minute. Let's, let's rewind that a little bit. The, what is the, what was the last frontier marshal in California? You know, I think it was, at least that's on the U S marshal's website. They, they, that's what, how they classify it. And, uh, that he was the last, um, uh, Western Frontier uh, U.S. Marshal, and it was uh, he was prior to that he was the Ventura County Sheriff. I grew up in Ventura County or in Ventura itself, and um, and he our family's been there since uh, the 1870s in Ventura County, and up in Ohio specifically a lot of them, which is a small little town up in the in the hills, and he became the uh, the sheriff when my grandmother was a young kid. She was um, I think his side of the family was cousins to my grandmother and. Became the Ventura County Sheriff, longtime serving County Sheriff, and then became the was appointed as the U.S. Marshal for the uh, Western United States. And then he has a, right. another relative that was the uh, 
police chief in Oxnard and, and stuff. So there is a little bit there, but it was several decades before it became to me and my brothers and uh, it became cops. Yeah. Now your, your family is like all over Southern California in law enforcement, right? Yeah. We got quite a few members at the Los Angeles police department. I have uh, a cousin that worked for me at, at San Bernardino PD. And then my daughter works there as a um, civilian criminal or civilian um, investigator. And uh, so, yeah, we have a lot of family members that are, that are police officers. And, and I can see the family resemblance. <laughs> you know, what's funny is every time I see someone from LAPD, they kind of stare at me at first and they look at oh, me yeah. and then they go, are you a McBride? <laughs> I go, is it that obvious? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't help when the other McBride is on TV all the time too. So, you true, know, I've, true. him and I have swapped uh, spots on Fox and some other stuff, but yeah. So I kind of decide yeah, so you, by their reaction on how they ask, whether I want to actually acknowledge it or not. in there too, right? Yeah, I do both. I uh, have two nieces that work for LAPD as well. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. Wow, man. It's like, when we said Colson Nostra thing of ours, this really is the family. <laughs> they they sure. decided to move in and take over. But, you know, going going back to that, I never, you know, sure, I watched the cop shows, I think, as all kids did of, of Myra, like Chips and uh, SWAT and all that stuff. But that wasn't Thank the God, thing. God, you, you didn't mention Miami Vice. No, never. That was kind of a little bit later. Oh, That's, they, they weren't oh, real cops. Yeah. Give me a break. Ah, uh, there you go, Mer- There you go. Ha ha. But, uh, you know, I wanted to be a Marine and, uh, and I always did. And so much so that I graduated high school early. I had to take a couple classes at a continuation school to get enough re- units to graduate early. So I enlisted when I was at 17 years old and I was a junior in high school and there's a little bit of an interesting story on that, but anyway, so I no, went. No, 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 you don't. Get to, well, I have to, I have to, I have to get to that. So okay, okay, so I go down to the MEP station, and uh, and I had to get a will. Find the acronym. Uh, it's I, you know I can't remember what it's the military processing place where all the, the the recruits go to to get your physical and and all that stuff to go into the military, and uh, it's MEPs. I can't remember exactly at this moment when you put me on on guard like that to remember what it is, but. So, uh, since I wasn't a high school graduate, uh, I had to get what they call a will grad letter. And that's basically saying that he's a high school senior and he's going to graduate within a year because you could do a year deal at entry. So, but I was a high school junior. So I took the, uh, the letter down to the high school, they crossed out senior and they wrote junior. So I go down there and I'm enlisting in the, uh, in the Marines and I want to be in the infantry. So I, I go through the whole day. It's a whole day long process. I get the final spot and the, uh, and the, the uh, master gunnery sergeant, master sergeant in the Marines, whatever he was at that time, says, hey, everything looks good, but uh, are you a high school junior? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And he's like, well, we don't enlist high school juniors. You have to be a high school senior or senior status. So they sent me home. My recruiter said, and I had a good relationship with my recruiter. And he's like, you're a failure. You failed. I'm going to call you McFailure from now on. So, <laughs> so The indoctrination I, yeah, starts early. Yeah. So I, you know, we, we, we schemed and back then, you know, I couldn't believe the stuff they got away with, um, now looking back, you know, almost 40 years, but the recruiter used to give me the the keys to the government uh, car. And I used to drive all over town doing errands for him and stuff like that. I couldn't imagine doing that and giving some 17 year old kid, the, the keys to the government ride and let him drive around town. But we waited about a month and the recruiter says, Hey, go back down there to your high school tell them they this is a federal form they cannot modify it line anything out all they can do is fill in the blanks so i go down there and see the high school counselor i said hey um all you can do is fill on the date of when i'm going to graduate so they did they didn't cross out senior but i was still a junior 
And so I went back down to MEPS, did the whole thing, and um, and they I get to the very end, and the master says, "Hey, weren't you here about a month ago?" And I'm like, uh, "Yes, sir." And he says, "Were you a high school senior or a junior then?" I'm like, uh, "Yeah." And he goes, "Well, it says you're a senior now. Sign right here." <laughs> so, there you go. So that was it. It was off and running. So I was on delayed. Raise your right hand. Repeat yep. after me. So I was on delayed entry for a year. I was so motivated. You know, I couldn't wait. And then I went to boot camp. But flash forward what'd you, to what'd you do for that year though? Um, I finished up my, uh, my, that summer break and then went to the first six months or the whatever months of that first semester of my senior year of high school, uh, graduated midterm. And then two weeks later I was in boot camp. I graduated boot camp before my uh, class graduated high school. Wow. I was in entrance school. Uh, yeah. MIPS is military entrance processing station. Yep. So I was in infantry school when my class actually walked across the stage and got their diplomas. What year was that? 1985. Wow. So, Dang. but, uh, you know, I, I did, I was in the infantry. Um, fortunately, I got the MOS of 0352, which is an anti-tank gunner. So um, I got to ride. Back when I first went in, it was Jeeps. And then they, the military transitioned, the Marine Corps transitioned over to the Humvees, which, you know, was better because when it was raining, we had cover over our head. But uh, so I did multiple tours. I, uh, I ver- was... Well, it's funny. I went to boot camp in San Diego, but they sent me to infantry school in North Carolina. And then I thought, well, I'm going to be on the East Coast. And I got my first orders, and they sent me to 29 Palms. And uh, 29 Palms is kind of a miserable place to be as an 18-year-old. We've heard that from other guests who were former Marines formerly on active duty. It's a shithole. Yeah. So I I looked around and said, hey, who's the first what's the first platoon that's going overseas on deployment? So I jumped on that first deployment a couple months later. Uh, before that, I went to Mountain Warfare School, school up in Bridgeport and then uh, went over to Okinawa. But as a Marine over in Okinawa, being in, specifically in, in my MOS, you get attached to different battalions that are going. So we went to Mount Fuji for three months. I ended up going to Thailand for a month and because the Thais had bought the Bato uh, missile systems. And so we went over there, trained them as advisors. Then I rotated back to 29 Palms. I, I got to get out of here. So I volunteered to go back to Okinawa for a year. Went back over there, got assigned to 9th Marine Regiment, and then went to Fuji, went to Korea Operations, and um, and then rotated back. And I had a year left. And But fortunately, when I came back, I went to Camp Pendleton and uh, much better scenery than uh, 29 Palms. And uh, met, met my my girlfriend who became my wife. And then I said, hey, I got to do something. you know. I, and I intended to be a Marine forever. So I submitted my reenlistment package, and I wanted to go to um, Europe on Marine Barracks, London, Rota, Spain, um, Naples, Italy. And the Marine Corps came back and said, hey, we've got uh, all those billets filled. You can go to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, Adak, Alaska, um, Diego Garcia, Okinawa. And I'm like, I'd heard the horror stories from Marines that have been those places. I'm not going there. And so I, I talked to my career planner, and he says, hey, how about if I get you a spot as an instructor in uh, – at the infantry school. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Turned out that that had been promised by somebody else to somebody else. And, and so I ended up being a game warden for a year. And the reason that I took that, um, was because I just got married that like the month I reenlisted and I didn't want to go on deployment the first year I was married. Mm-hmm. So, so at did, California game warden Yeah, I, on Camp Pendleton. Oh, on, oh okay. On now, so you were still a Marine. Then. Still a Marine. Yep. They, they had what they called FAP fleet assistance program at the time. And there were positions that the Marine Corps had that didn't have an MOS, and they would staff it with Marines from different various MOSs, and that was one of them. So here's a throwback. I remember what toast because you mentioned tow, T-O-W, mm-hmm. tube-fired, optically sighted, wire-guided missile. Yep. 
Yep. Jeez, it's, it's, well, it's an acronym. Yep. You know, and you're talking about 29 Palms, and I've heard other people talk about it. And I'm looking, and I'm seeing a lot of sand. It looks like a beach to me. I mean, what the hell's wrong with that? And they got this lake called Lake Bandini, and it's great. And uh, Lake Bandini is where they send all the sewage. <laughs> and, uh, oh, there you go. 110 degrees. It kind of hell, goes. you had all your shots, man. Don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> exactly. But uh, you Marines, you're just never happy. Come on, now. Yep. So <laughs> I, you know, I got back from that uh, that one year assignment as a game warden. And I started talking to my brother, Jamie. I, I, mean, I don't know if – I know you guys have talked to him. Oh, yeah. No, we've – yeah, we've we, met we Jamie several that. times. Yeah. And uh, he's like – Jamie has always wanted to be a cop. And he's like, hey, why don't you get out of the Marines and, and be a cop? So I only reenlisted for two years. And the reason for that was that you can reenlist a year out from your, your EAS, your end of active service. And, um, and then, you know, for, so in a year, I could actually submit for reenlistment. So I was due already to submit for reenlistment when I came back from that. And uh, – I said, no, I never really thought. And I had, now I had a kid and, uh, I said, well, I'd never thought about it. And he was telling me he, he was dead set on going to LAPD and stuff. So he talked me into, um, to applying and they, every, every month LAPD comes out to uh, camp Pendleton to administer the written test. So I took the written test, passed it. Um, I went down, got a, now, how did you, how did you pass the test? Did they, did you, did they have crayons small enough for you? No, to being that it's LAPD, um, the, the bar is not very high. <laughs> but, uh, so I was fortunate, uh, you know, that, that for that, and I passed, you know, the written test, but put an uh, X in the box, right exactly, to the right hand. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I, I passed and I, I went down for my oral interview and I got a 99 out of a hundred. And at that time, since there hadn't been a conflict and I didn't, wasn't a combat veteran at the time, um, I didn't get veterans preference points. So I scored high enough to, to process and I went down, they have a similar process of like the, the MEP station where you go through these stations for a physical and stuff like that. It reminded me very much of going in the Marines. Hey Eric, hold on for just a minute. Murph and I got to just take a quick timeout. So, Hey Murph. Guess what? What? It is coming up on fall. And you know what fall means? Fall means college football oh, season, yeah. baby. And yeah. look, I don't want to be messing around thinking about making something or having my wife thinking about making something. So guess what? Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit will help you fuel up fast with shelf-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time. You'll eat well. You'll stay on track. And guess what? You know, these these things are fresh, never frozen, ready in two minutes. So all you have to do is heat and enjoy and then get back to crushing your goals and your opponent, which Notre Dame will do again this season. And West Virginia beat Pitt yesterday. Yes, but, they did. Uh, you know what? These guys, they have over 34 weekly flavor pack, fresh, never frozen meals. They're ready to eat. They've got the gourmet plus options. These are ones if you have a more demanding palate. They've got lunch to go, so you don't have to spend a lot of time getting ready to go to work. They've got calorie-conscious options for people like me with their calorie-smart meals. have less than 550 calories per serving. They've got protein-plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more. They even have a snack supply <laughs> that includes juices, shakes, smoothies. I've had their smoothies. They are fantastic. They are. Oh. Man, I'll tell you, and that's the best part, Murph, is you get all of the stuff brought to your door. We don't have to get up so we can continue to watch. Yeah, you can watch West Virginia maybe win another couple. I want to watch Notre Dame win again, right? So the way to do it, folks, you got to get this. You got to get factor. Enjoy eating well without the hassle, really. Simply choose your meals. Enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered right to your door, ready in two minutes. No prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash GOC50. 
and use code GOC50 to get 50% off. That's code GOC50 at factormeals.com slash GOC50 to get 50% off. Yeah. Okay, hey, let's 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 dive back in with Eric now. Got through that. They pretty much said, hey, you're you're gonna be good to go. And more than likely, Jamie and I were gonna go to the academy together. Talked to my sergeant major. He was going to give me a, a little bit of early release on on uh, TAD to go to the academy, and and then I got orders to go to main side at Camp Pendleton for to get screened for recruiting duty, and they're like, "Hey, uh, you're going to recruiting duty," and I'm like, "Well, I'm getting out. I'm going to be a cop." Like, well, everybody tells us that. So which class you want to go to? So, so I picked the first class that was coming up, like in um, January uh, of. Uh, 1991 and there's like well that's just before your eas so let's put you in the in the class after that i'm like okay whatever well just flash forward like a month later and saddam hussein invades kuwait and uh since i'm in a tank battalion and i'm an anti-tank gunner and this is going to be a big tank battle my unit got deployed uh, over there uh very very quickly and so i ended up spending nine months over in saudi arabia and then was in task force papa bear which was one of the main mech um task task forces that retook kuwait city so i was in that involvement uh we, we you know and then i sat over there did you get to get involved in the highway of death attack where they took out all of that armor no that was that was an all of an air thing um they took that out but you know amazingly when i when i read the history of of our a task force and what we did um although i was not a tanker we the 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 tactics at the time were the anti-tank because we were mobile um you know now i look around and think man we were side by side with the tanks advancing forward and, and we didn't have any armor but um but we we're involved in that stuff but it, you look back and it was the largest Marine Corps tank battle in its history. And because, it, and when you really look back, you know, during World War II, when you had the last major tank battles, the Marine Corps is in the Pacific. And so there wasn't really big land warfare, uh, maneuver warfare stuff going on in the Pacific. So, but in the Gulf War, we did, and it was the largest tank battle in Marine Corps history. Wow, because the biggest, the turning point in World War II was the Battle of Kursk, is what they called us when the Russians finally got their act together and got enough tanks. And that's the first. I mean, significant loss for German and German armor, you know, in a battle. But yeah, the tanks have always factored in, um, you know, on battles. But uh, did you ever watch the series, the HBO series, South Pacific? I did, yes. Yep. How about uh, Band of Brothers? I did, yep. Uh, aren't those frickin'—here's you know, wh- one thing I learned about, uh, well, that and also Saving Private Ryan— basically like 25% of the movie's budget was spent just on that opening scene on D-Day, you know, when people are landing. They, they wanted it to be so authentic. And I, my dad was a World War II vet and a Vietnam vet. He got out before Korea came back in. But I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge World War II buff. And when I see that stuff, I mean, I wasn't there, obviously. And, but it's like, you, but you're feeling it. You're going, oh, my fucking God, you know, just what these guys went through, you know. And you think about the South Pacific and the— uh, who was the who was the Bastone uh, John Bastone was it the Yep John Bastone Medal of Honor winner recipient Yeah he got the freaking Medal of Honor and then they brought him stateside to do some you know sell the bonds and he said no I got to get back into battle that's when he got killed when he went back and I think he was killed in Okinawa Yep Yeah uh, received it uh, the Medal of Honor for his actions on Guadalcanal and then uh, you know was killed in Okinawa Battle of Okinawa And I've I've been on landing craft you know doing during different operations doing amphibious assaults and in, in those very similar landing craft like they portrayed on uh, band of brothers and seeing that and then having been in it before going man i can't believe that those guys are heroes you know that that uh, gate comes down and and there's 
totally exposed to the machine, machine gun 50 fire. calibers, yeah, coming at you. Well, I had the honor of meeting, and I didn't know this for two years. The guy was so humble, but do you know the name um, Colonel Barney Barnum? Kind of sounds familiar, but uh, he's a CMH winner from uh, Vietnam, hmm. and he's the he's the husband of the wife of I was a, at a nonprofit institute. I was on the board, but so we go to a Christmas dinner down at Ruth Chris in Arlington, and what does he show up with? He shows up with the CMH around his neck, and it's like you sandbagged me for two years. You never mentioned shit. Right, we had, right. and you know what? I, I will tell you, it doesn't take long when you've got a CMH winner, the line at Ruth's Chris uh, in Arlington there, it wrapped around the corner, went down the stairs. Every Marine, I think within sniffing distance, you know, within mm -hmm. a, a stones, it, I mean, even way out, you know, outside any, anybody within 25 miles, I think was lined up to, to go meet him. What an honor to see guys Absolutely. like that. Yeah. Yep. Well, back to you now, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So right. you're over there for nine months. When did you actually get into in-country, out of Saudi Arabia and in-country and get into some fighting? Um, we, what was that? Uh, the ground or the air war started in January, January, uh, January that, where they started bombarding. And we started moving our, we were already very forward deployed at that time. Um, the, the, the somewhat, uh, the speed bump in case the Iraqis came in and um, the, to at least delay and or prevent them from attacking further in. But, uh, you know, we were close enough that they would drop every night. They would drop uh, leaflets before the bombing campaign. And then they were dropping the 10,000-pound bombs on the, on the Iraqis. And, and the leaflets would blow into our positions, and we'd see them. I have a bunch of them. And, um, and, then, and a lot of times after they dropped the 10,000-pound bombs and the Iraqis got to experience that firsthand, that they dropped these leaflets showing the B-52 saying, hey, we're coming back tonight drop these things again but if you take these leaflets and go head towards the american lines and surrender and i guess they were so those bombs are so just demoralizing mm -hmm. that uh that they knew that that would be effective and but i it, saw those pictures i remember seeing those pictures of them holding up the leaflets yep. you know? but those bombs i mean they all the bombs you know they the ground just shook you know um, mm -hmm. crazy and of course before they started, we'd have to get in position just in the event that the Iraqis came forward or that we had people that would come across and surrender. But um, but then we did the ground war actually in February. And, you know, I still remember, you know, we, we had a briefing and they expected us to uh, suffer about 30 to 40 percent casualties. Um, you know, we were taking nerve agent pills, anthrax pills. You know, I got inoculated for uh, botulism and all this stuff. And um, and then, you know, then during the briefing, they said, hey, because it you know, amazingly, it's really cold in the wintertime. It was uh, had a very low ceiling because it was drizzling. And they knew well, they wouldn't from be California. Able. Cold is relative. What do you mean yeah. by really cold? Like <laughs> it got below 50? What? Yeah, it gets it actually gets cold with the wind and, and everything over there. It gets it, it'll cut right through your uniform or your clothing that you're wearing and it and it bites. But um, but so the um, they knew they weren't going to be able to get air in to medevac people out. So they said, hey, we're just basically going to throw them an Amtrax, which is an, an amphibious armored vehicle that can go land in, in the ocean. And we're going to send them back to the rear to to uh, to the, the, the medical. But we knew that we were expecting a lot of casualties. We had to go through two minefields um, to get into Kuwait. Um, but uh, I remember lining up, and I have a friend that retired from the Marines, that a lot of my friends retired because I was a second-termer, and they stayed in even though I got out. And... Uh, and I remember we were online getting ready to to move forward, and it's in the middle of the night, the night before the ground war. And I walked over to his Humvee, and I just shook his hand and said, "Hey, good luck. See you in uh, Baghdad, or see you in uh, Kuwait City." And uh, he still, I asked him, that, you know, not too long ago, "Hey, so, I, do you remember that?" And he says, "Yeah, I remember that." And he went on. He ended up serving in, uh, staying and going, you know, over to Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff like that too. But um, 
but we moved in and amazingly it was, you know, the Iraqis were dropping artillery on us, uh, as we were moving forward, um, shooting at us, but it was almost like they didn't know how to aim. And we, we suffered near nowhere near the casualties that we expected. We, you know, we lost some people or at least, you know, some people on our task force, we had some people wounded, I think about 10, 15 wounded in my company. Uh, but we were able to move forward and, uh, attack some of our, you know, uh, detectors went off for chemical and biological weapons, which we were told were false. <laughs> but uh, to this day, some people, you know, allege that they were just told that that we were, but that stuff actually was, at, you know, real activations. But we'll never know. I mean, that's probably secret mm-hmm. stuff. But, um, but yeah, so we went in and and uh, we set up on the Kuwaiti National Airport, which was our objective. And uh, they told us to stand fast that night because the allied Arab forces were going to go and actually seize the airport for uh, CNN. So we had to stand back while they went well, in. Well, wait a minute. Seize the airport for <laughs> CNN. This was a staged photo op. That was a stage. The actual taking of the airport was reserved for the allies and, uh, and for the CNN. Yep. And we, but we were there. Of- we took all the brunt of everything before that point. So they were nowhere near us when, when the actual combat was taking place. All governments participate in propaganda. Yep, absolutely. Oh boy. Well, it's like, what didn't they say MacArthur, like, to get that picture, it was like two or three times, you know, he had to redo it, you know, waiting ashore, you know, in the Philippines, you know, coming back, you know. Um, and even even the, the raising of the flag on Mount Suribarchi, uh, that famous photo, that was, the one they caught was not the actual one that they did. They did it before, and then they redid it again, so. Absolutely. It's much but it smaller wasn't for flag propaganda. originally. They got yeah. a bigger flag and redid it. Yeah. To, Wow, man. So, um, but when you were there, did you lose anybody? It's not wounded, but did you lose anybody? I did not. Not in my company, not in my uh, battalion. Um, but it was a large task force. And there was, I think we had an individual, they they ran over a mine. There was a ton of mines. And uh, he got killed that way. But there were, um, a, was, I think it was about 10. We had a formation before we came back where they handed out some Purple Hearts. And I think we had about 10 people in our company that got Purple Hearts. Um there were some uh, Marines seriously wounded. There was uh, an incident that I didn't observe myself, but there was some Amtraks with some infantry in it that was behind us. Uh, we were forward of that with the tanks and the tows, but there, there were, we were bypassing. If there was an Iraqi that was unarmed, raised, we, we were moving forward so fast. They said, just drop your weapon, tell them to drop the weapon, and we'll keep moving forward and let everybody behind us mop up the uh, Here, POWs. Here, take this and go turn yourself in. Yeah, and and the people behind us were going to uh, you know, mop up the POWs. So there was some Iraqis that were surrendering, and there was some, some Marines in an Amtrak, and their, uh, and their lieutenant told them to dismount and take these prisoners, and right when they dismounted, a mortar landed amongst, amongst them and, and wounded a bunch of them, those Marines. Mm. Yep. What mortar from the Iraqi side? Uh I would assume so. I hope it wasn't our own, but uh, uh, friendly fire, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know if, if it was or wasn't. But I'm, I'm assuming it was uh, Iraqi mortar. But um, but those Marines were wounded and obviously had to take back. But you know what's funny is as you see the old pictures, and we had it on our Humvees as well, because you want room inside those Amtraks because you're just crammed in there with all your gear. You typically would hang your your Alice packs on the outside, and the Marines inside they said they would hear the pinging of the rounds off the the light armor of the Amtrak while they're inside what's an alice pack um you know that's another acronym <laughs> and i uh, can't remember what alice stands for but it's it's basically your rucksack your uh it's basically all backpack. your 
Yeah. yeah. All your gear and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Hanging off the edge. Hey, now I know you keep mentioning toes, uh, but w- were the javelins out then or was that? Javelin's were, a more or, recent uh, uh, okay. thing. So the javelin, is my understanding, replaced the, replaced the toe. Um, so yeah, toe I just did, an I, acronym. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't realize when it came out, but how uh, well, I got to fire a few when I went through basic. I went through Fort Leonardwood Army side. Um, we got to fire toes, um, but how how accurate? Or did you have a chance to fire a few of those? I Were they fired good? quite a few of those. Yes, not as many as you would suspect because they're about ten back then. They're about ten thousand dollars a missile, and so and I think <laughs> about I think twelve thousand. But if it was an inert round which had everything but the uh, the warhead, it was maybe a couple thousand dollars cheaper. So you fired more of the ones without a warhead than you fired with a warhead. And Why? since they were so expensive, because they're two thousand dollars cheaper. No, I mean, but but what would the inert? What what would without the warhead? What 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 could you actually do with it? Would it just just so, disable it, or no, it just wouldn't uh, explode at the end? But the uh, it's the same thing, and, and the purpose of the training was it's wire guided, and you and you have to guide. Oh, you mean in the way. training? I was yeah. talking about though, like in actual combat, though. Like, oh no, no, they're all live. We we had a combat load, so. You know, okay, I, had, I was going, who's firing inert rounds? In no, 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 okay. in training. But no, we had um, so many missiles that we filled the racks that held the missiles in our Humvees. And then it gave us an extra two to throw on top because um, we anticipated such an engagement take battle. And, and we have guys in my, in my company, uh, a Silver Star recipient um, wow. that when we went forward and he, uh, I'll tell his story, he later got a commission but at the time he was a corporal. And we we're under artillery attack from the Iraqis, and he had a uh, mule, a laser designator that we could designate the target for like artillery or, or, or uh, bombardment. And uh, he was trying to laze the uh, the Iraqi uh, artillery, and it was just out of range. So he ran into the minefield um, to set up in a position to where he could laze that, and then successfully did that and destroyed the Iraqi artillery. And he received a, a silver star for that. But then and he's got to get out of the minefield. <laughs> Yeah, a very superstar carefully. and then an ass chewing from the gunny <laughs> right after that, right? But, but the thing, you know, obviously there were some that were still covered by the sand, but the Iraqis had set those up and we were there for months and the, and the wind blows out there. So a lot of that, the, the mines were exposed. You could see them. Um, oh, really? But of course, there's probably some that were still covered. So it was dangerous, but for the most part, you could see them. Um, so, but still. Yeah. Do they put those out in a pattern, or they just randomly throw them out there? You know, I don't know how they did it. I, I never laid any mines, but I'm sure there's a um, technique and a a way to do it to to cover you know an area. Mm-hmm. But they they put out thousands and thousands of mines, all all sorts of uh, different wherever they could buy them from over their course of you know the rain over yeah. there of Saddam Hussein. He bought mines. Yeah. yeah. Well, Saddam. And so we had a guy on Jeff Sandy, uh, was an IRS agent, but he went over after the war. He did the investigation on Tariq Aziz, the oil for food, mm-hmm. the huge uh, scam that that was. So that that was interesting to realize. They weren't dumb people. Uh, you know, they just weren't militarily. He was, you know, that the war between Iraq and Iran, uh, Iran for years is kind of what degraded them. But they, they were not dumb people. The stuff that they figured out how to scam hundreds of millions of dollars with the oil for food program. Mm-hmm. Um, you just wonder why, you know, but it's greed, man. You, you, you want one country, you want oil. And then pretty soon we got a little war going on. Yep. And they had some, you know, I'll tell you this, you know, people look at. And they think that it was a somewhat a bloodless war over there in the Gulf when we were there. And um, while we didn't lose very many people, the Iraqis lost a lot of people. Um, they had a tremendous amount of losses. I don't think that 
we ever kind of disclosed um, the amount of losses that Iraqis suffered during that ground campaign, but uh, uh, there was a lot of losses. For example, there was uh, the second morning of the ground war, um, very low ceiling. You couldn't even see that far um, in front of you because of the, the fog and, and stuff like that. And I wasn't at the command post. We were on the on the perimeter. But suddenly they started seeing these tracer rounds coming out of the, the fog and, and nobody saw these Iraqi tanks and this tank column coming out of the fog. And it was, you know, uh, shooting at our command post. And, but there was a, the lead tank and it was the t- Iraqi tank commander jumps off his tank, says, I'm surrendering, but the rest of them are coming to attack. And, uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden these tanks started coming out of the fog. And, uh, there was even, you know, uh, Cobras and stuff hovering over the command post, kind of like that scene when you see in uh, Black Hawk Down that we're firing at the Iraqis and the shell casings are landing on the command post. But um, one of my, one of the guys in our in our platoon, uh, several of them, you know, this guy in particular got a bronze star because he had he had fired off uh, around a, a toe at a tank, destroyed that tank, and then uh, you're supposed to uh, leave it armed the uh, the the actual missile system because it cuts the wire when you open it up. Well, in his you know, haste and, you know, excitement, he disarmed it, which left the wire intact into the missile um, casing. And uh, he got kind of twisted in it and he had to discard it, got rid of it, loaded another round in and, and destroyed another tank. And, uh, but the, the, the Iraqi suffered a tremendous amount of tank, tank uh, destruction and loss. And, you know, we, we destroyed quite a few of those guys over there. Wow, that, that guy that jumped off initially to surrender, that's leadership from the front, isn't it? Exactly. He knew what he was facing. <laughs> but, Apparently, nobody else got the memo. Exactly. Well, so, so, so you said you were over there for nine months, right? So um, what was it like? Because uh, it was, I mean, they, thought, they called it shocking all right. It wasn't that long of a war, but were you surprised it ended as quickly as it did? You know, we were. Um, just in a matter of several days. Um, I mean, it was... Very little sleep, moving forward, constantly moving forward into uh, into Kuwait towards the objective, and uh, there was a lot of people that kind of wanted to continue on and go into Iraq. I mean, the army hooked around um, north. I think it would be north of us to cut the Iraqis off, but we pushed through and pushed the Iraqis back so quickly that the army didn't have an opportunity to really cut off the the Iraqi army um, as they retreated back into uh, Iraq. But there was a lot of people that said, let's, let's continue on. Let's go to Baghdad, you know, and I'm like, well, shades of MacArthur, <laughs> let's just keep pushing on, you yep. know, let's keep pushing past the 38th parallel and take care of this. But I think the Iraqis had suffered such losses um, in the media. There was no, you didn't see any reporters over there. There was no um, cameras, no uh, video cameras, anything like that. And, I, and I've heard or read that uh, Bush was kind of concerned about the amount of Iraqi casualties and that it would look like we were, you know, piling on. And he was concerned about that. And that's one reason why he didn't push on. Plus, he had said the objective overall was just to retake Kuwait and give it back to the Kuwaitis. Push, push Iraq out back to their own borders. Yeah. Wow, man. So um, you do your time there. Um, when you come back, you, you still got like, what, another year, year and three months? No, I was actually involuntarily extended. So um, I was more than likely going to go to the academy in October with my brother, in 1990, but I got over there to the Gulf and, uh, they said, we're going to be over here to the duration. And, uh, so a matter of fact, I went down some of the guys who had picked that first recruiting class for, um, for recruiting school, all of a sudden they got orders. They had to pack up and they go back to uh, San Diego to go to recruiting school. So I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if I've got orders. 
So I go down to our uh, personnel department and I said, hey, do I have orders for recruiting school? They go, yeah, you got a flight date in January and you're going back to recruiting school. And uh, But then in, in December, I think it was, they did stop loss, which meant if you're in the theater, you're there till the end. And my actual EAS was in February. So February came and left and uh, I was still over there and had to stay for the duration. And it's what they call an involuntary um, um, extension of the convenience of the government. So, um, I came back. Does that get you any favors for later? It, or? it does not. And, uh, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing extra. not. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I come back and the Marine Corps tells me, cause I already re-enlisted once, sold, you know, a lot of terminal leave cause I just got married and you can only sell back 60 in a career and I sold back 30. So I had more leave than I could actually take or sell back. Cause the Marine, Marine Corps says you're going to be out in 30 days. Well, I'd called when I got back, I'd called LAPD. My brother, I got back just before my gr- brother graduated the academy, got to go to his graduation at the academy. And uh, LAPD says, hey, you're great. You're going to be in the next academy class, but uh, we've got a hiring freeze. And uh, that hiring freeze <laughs> lasted for a year. And so uh, I had to start looking for alternatives. And uh, San Bernardino was recruiting on Camp Pendleton, San Bernardino Police Department. And uh, I didn't really know where San Bernardino was. Um I knew a little bit, but I'd never been there in my life. And uh, they were advertising on the Camp Pendleton newspaper. So I applied and uh, literally got through the entire process in a month and a half. And my last day in the Marine Corps, my first official day in the police academy was my last official day in the Marine Corps. But you you had no thoughts about extending and staying on with the Marines? You were just at that point, were you done? I was done. Um, I had already had checked out. I, I knew that uh, I was going to be making more money as a cop even starting out than I was as a sergeant in the Marines. Well, that says a hell of a lot about the pay where you can say, <laughs> I'm going to make more as a cop. <laughs> yeah. Very and, few occupations you can say that about. And, and the pension was better. I remember everybody was always sold on the Marine Corps that you're going to get 50% of your, your income for the rest of your life. And at the time I started in police work, it was 60%. So I'm like, man, this is great. I'm going to get 10% more in my uh, in my pension than I would have been if I was in the military. And obviously, it changed over time, and I retired at 90%, but uh, which is pretty phenomenal, I have to tell you. <laughs> but wow. um, yeah, but uh, but yeah. So I started my last. It overlapped my first day in the academy. I was still a marine. I, I you know just to put that in comparison, I did 26 years with DEA, and my retirement is 46%. Yeah, yeah. You're 90. <laughs> You know, it's it, about a, being a Marine, retiring at 50% of what you couldn't afford to live on in the first exactly. place. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We'd have a lot of, everybody wants to go to the federal agencies, you know, the three-letter agencies, because it's it's looked as the the premier thing. And it's great. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about those agencies. But oftentimes, those guys would come there to sign the task forces out in California, working with the California cops, which we do make pretty good money out there. You get 90% of a sum that's far greater than what a lot of police agents make across the country. And they'd look at it and go, how much do you make? What's your pension? And they're just yeah. blown away. You know? Well, I, I was talking to a guy at LAS, uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Office. And uh, if you did 25, I think you got free medical for life. Is that right? It depends. You know, that's a, that's the, um, were you a under CalPERS thing. or a different? Uh, I'm under CalPERS. Car. Yep. Under CalPERS. But whether or not you receive medical benefits, um, it's dependent upon what you negotiated, your bargaining group negotiated with your city or your county. So mm, okay. I got no medical. I go to the VA. 
yeah. Oh, the, the height of uh, efficiency in medical uh, yeah. care. Yeah. I have to say, I'm not, I'm not disappointed. It, you know, I, I go there and, and everything gets taken care of. I've been very happy with the service. Well, it's the same. It's the same. No matter what the uh, diagnosis is, the prescription is the same. Take two ibuprofen and call me in the morning. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Right. I tell you what, the uh, I live in Orlando, and the the VA hospital they have out here next to Lake Nona looks like something out of uh, Gotham City. It is one of the most impressive buildings I've ever seen in my life. It's the nicest VA hospital I've ever seen anywhere in the United States. Yeah, they've. they've I just hope I hope the the quality of service goes along with the beautiful you know, building. Before I retired, we had a reserve, uh, and we still have a reserve officer that's a doctor at the VA. And I asked him, I hit him up, and I said, "Hey." Um, I'm thinking about going to the VA as my primary care provider when I retire. I said, how is it? And it cut out the BS. He says, to be honest with you, he says, the last administration, he said, took to heart what the veterans said. And they spent a lot of money in the VA. He says, we see, now we've seen even the patients coming here because they get such better care because it's not a managed healthcare system. And so it's not like they're looking at cost and profit and stuff like that. The VA, when I have an issue, it's like they do every test possible. And there's, the cost is not an issue. You don't have to go back to the insurance company and ask for approval. Um, it's you t- the taxpayers that are paying for it, and they just have a huge budget, and they just approve it. And it just gets done. Well, that's the way it should be. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I, I, can't, I don't have any complaints. Yeah, well, and it's come a long ways too from what it used to be too. But you know, we got to take care of the war fighters, men and women, uh, and some of these significant injuries. It's like uh, you want good VA care. So your first day, um, you were you were still a Marine on active duty. So, um, but you but there's San Bernardino County, and then you were San Bernardino uh, City. You did mm-hmm. police. How big of a g- give us some context now? Let's start talking about this. How big is San Bernardino County? How big's the city? How big was your PD? You know, I can't remember. Um how many square miles the uh, the Just county population wise? Yeah, the, the county is several million, um, but it's by landmass, it's the largest county in the United States. So it's bigger some, than some of the small states back east. It's it's just huge. Wow. It goes all the way from San Bernardino to drive north to Vegas. I can drive for four hours and still be in the county of San Bernardino. And the same as <laughs> my God, out east. here in the out here in Northern Virginia. But you would in four hours you would go from Virginia through D.C. through Delaware through Maryland through uh, Pennsylvania. You know, you could do West Virginia. You could do all that in four hours. Yeah. And the thing is, is most of the most of the uh, the county is desert. Um, so there's nothing out there um, in that in those areas, but it's just a tremendous amount of landmass. It's just huge. It's over, it's over twenty thousand square miles. Yeah, it's oh, it's yeah. huge. So the sheriff's department has one of the largest um, uh, air fleets. I think they have probably ten, twelve well, helicopters. They need to like the Alaska State Troopers, man. You got to you, if you're going to go somewhere, it's a two hour trip. Yeah. If you're by car, you got to cut it down. But the city of San Bernardino is located. Uh, west and the western portion of the county which is the large population base so we have about in the metropolitan um area for the 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 city where we're at just east of los angeles about 50 miles there's about two 2.5 million um police or population so it's a large population area um but the rest of the county is pretty you know sparsely so about what 2000 2500 on the pd no, no. So the city itself, we have about, uh, when I started, it was about 185,000 population. It's grown to about 230 now. But at the oh. time, we at the largest, the police department for Sworn was about 350. Okay. I was thinking of the, okay. So you were talking about the metro area, though, it's about yeah. like two and a half million. Okay. But the city itself, about 200,000. So yes. 
Well, yeah, I'm, looking the map here. Yep. I'm looking here at a map of the county, and I mean, it goes all the way to the Nevada state line. And Arizona state line, yep. Wow. Dang. So let's talk about you as a youth, right? So uh, you, you go through the academy. Are there interesting, any interesting stories we should know about you in the academy, Eric? You know, Knowing that we have done, we honest. have reached out to our contacts. <laughs> you know, I don't know that, you know, having gone through boot camp in, in the Marine Corps, which, you know, they considered the, the that academy, police academy I went to as a stress academy, but it's nothing like going through Marine Corps boot camp of course. And you got to go home at night, right? And you're off on the weekends. So with the most- Just the, like the, Marine Corps boot camp. <laughs> yes, exactly. The, the craziest thing <laughs> that I'm standing there and, um, you know, they're, the first day, for example, you talk about that. And it's the first thing for me was it's July in San Bernardino and I grew up on the coast and it's like 105, 107 degrees. So it's super, super hot. And, uh, but we're standing there in the formation and they're yelling that, the, the TAC officers are yelling at us. And I start seeing a few people here and there pick up their stuff and walk off. They're quitting. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, <laughs> really? I'm looking at these guys out of the side of my, my eye. And I, I'm like, are they seriously walking off? I said, they're getting paid good money. I got paid initially in the Marine Corps like $500 to go to boot camp a month. <laughs> so and we're getting paid, you know, several thousand dollars. I said, this isn't, this is a piece of cake. And uh, it's surprising that, and some of those were, they weren't Marines, but the, some of them were in the military. I won't say what branch. I wouldn't want to disparage that <laughs> sister, sister agency. We, we all know which branch. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, people would walk off and I couldn't believe it that they couldn't handle the, the, you know, they're trying to pile on the stress, but to me, it wasn't really that much stress. You know, <laughs> if they got upset because somebody yelled at them, what's going to happen when they get on the street? Exactly. And that's, <laughs> and that's part of the reason for getting yelled at is they're trying to, to, to get those people out before they ever get into. Sarge, this up. bad guy hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, for me, um, the Academy, I mean, other than being, um, you know, not that long, it wasn't, anything that I hadn't really had exposure to before. I think they put me in, in charge one day to, um, you know, as the class sergeant and you're responsible for like getting people in the classroom and marching them to and from locations. And most of us Marines, when we got out there, you know, we knew how to give the right face, left face and, you know, forward march and even know how to call cadence. And we got fired very quickly because it wasn't any fun because were they going to yell at? We knew what we were doing, but it's those people who are civilians that never had that exposure that typically stayed longer as a class sergeant. Um, and they suffered more because of it, but, uh, oh, you know, you just kind of keep that low profile in, in the Academy. I never tried to, you know, make myself known kind of like what you try to do in boot camp, right? Shrink into the background. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. yeah, that lesson I learned too: never volunteer for anything. Absolutely. <laughs> Although I did, I did volunteer in boot camp for something, and it's a funny story. If we go back to boot camp, is uh, we between after you do the uh, the rifle range in the Marine Corps, there's like a break, and they either go on mess duty, guard duty, or um, whatever. And uh, so the first day, um, I can't remember what we were doing, but they had taken these these Marines, these privates. They're not Marines yet; they're just recruits, and they had graveyard um, mess duty, and so. One of my rack mates was one of those Marines, and one of the Marines that went on that duty for some reason couldn't do it. They needed to add, and he goes, "Hey, I'm going to volunteer you. Go ahead and volunteer for this. It's you're not going to you're not going to regret it." So I said, "Okay, I'll volunteer for it." So as the mess hall is closing at night, we would go down there as the as the night privates for the mess hall, and uh, and uh, 
still the drill instructors there, everybody's going on. And then as soon as it uh, shut down, everybody was gone. There was just basically a corporal in charge. And you say, hey, you guys can go ahead and sleep, do whatever you want. And uh, I'll wake you up before they come back in the morning. And so we had access to like all the refrigerators, all the sweets and stuff. He goes, hey, if you want to make something, a burger, do whatever you want, you can, you can do it. So we're like gorging ourselves on cake and cooking hamburgers at night and then sleeping in the chow hall and acting like we were tired in the morning when they came back and then you go back and sleep in the, in the you know, barracks during the day. So it's kind of a fun, only time I ever volunteered. <laughs> yeah. I made that mistake one time of volunteering. They come out and they say, Hey, we need some drivers. And when I was going through Fort Leonard Wood, every now and then you would get asked to like drive a pickup truck of supplies from one location to the other. So stupidly, I raised my hand. I ended up driving a wheelbarrow for most of the afternoon, moving bricks and dirt. <laughs> right. You know, got to be careful well, what you ask for sometimes. You know, I volunteered to co-host a podcast, and now I'm stuck with Morgan. Look at that. <laughs> Nobody asked you, Murph. <laughs> well, I get a shot in when you can. Yeah, you did. So let's let's get into your career now. So um, you you have now you've been you're fully sworn uh, San Bernardino. Uh, police officer, um, everybody starts off working the road, right? So what's it like working the road in the mean streets of SB? So, you know, I didn't know anything about San Bernardino. And, um, but what I quickly found out is that what San Bernardino is what we call a very busy city. And uh, that first year I was on patrol and, you know, at the, at, after, after the field training program, obviously, but I'm on patrol and uh, we, that first year we had about 85 murders. So 85 homicides and you're literally going from call to call, um, all day long. And was that a good number or a bad number for San Bernardino? I mean, what was the regular? Well, the politically correct side of me saying even one murder is a, is a bad number, but, uh, but far as, you know, um, for policing as if you want to be a cop and seeing a lot of stuff, I, I can't say there in the course of my career in 30 years that there was ever very many true victims. I mean, there were absolutely people that uh, were victims and, and shouldn't have ever been murdered. But for the most part, it's a very, um, has a lot of gangs in San Bernardino. And this is gang members. And today's victims is tomorrow's suspect if they survive and vice versa. So it's, you're basically running from uh, call to call to these, you know, gang members that, and, and drug dealers that have shot and killed each other. And, and that's pretty much what it is. And of course, in the early nineties, you still had, uh, you know, the crack wars going on. And so it was just a tremendous amount of uh, warfare between, you know, rival gangs over drug territory. You know, I just looked up about the uh, the crime rate in San Bernardino, and it's uh, it looks like the average about forty six murders a year now. So 46. if you're hitting eighty one, that was quite a bit. Yeah, I, I, this year they're they're down a little bit, but uh, I think my last year we're in the in the eighties, seventies, or eighties, and that's just two years mm-hmm. ago. Who are the main gangs down there that you were dealing with? So we have a lot of homegrown um, gangs. So you used to have the Crips and the Bloods, but we have the uh, like the California, you know, Gardens, what we call it, was which, which a, uh, a a Crip set. Then we had you know rival gangs that literally live like a like a block away, but they're blood blood sets. And then we have a lot of uh, generational Hispanic gangs that uh, you see. And of course, they're clicked up and somewhat controlled by the Mexican mafia. And as you guys would know, that you know. You wonder how these guys in prison have control over these guys on the street, but all these gang members on the street know that at some point they're going to go to prison. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> and if they don't abide the rules, then they're going to pay the price when they go to prison. And they all funny go to you prison. mention that we just did because of where we met your brother at and out at the Southern California Gang Conference. We just did our first ever two timer, uh, Ramon Mundo uh, Mendoza, mm-hmm. an OG Mexican mafia guy in prison. I mean. Uh, 
Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what you're saying is how can uh, how can they have control over everything? And dude, he laid it out. I mean, we this in our second episode, we got into the homicides, we got into the way they control things, and it's like, man, um, they have they have got this figured out. They understand how to control people from womb to tomb, you know, and uh, absolutely. And, keep that thing going well they know how to manipulate the politicians in california also big thing yeah yeah so we just have a tremendous amount of gangs um a lot of the city um is your traditional generational gangs um just there's just a lot of them and so we have a lot of shootings um a lot of other associated you know robberies and and stuff like that so it's just a very very busy city and you get to see a lot of activity you lose track. I mean, I, I've talked to cops who talk about the one homicide they've been to in their career. And uh, there's very few in my mind that stand out. And, uh, you know, other than, you know, if it was a quadruple homicide involving uh, like some gangs, and there's some pretty famous ones, mm-hmm. at least locally for us as cops that, uh, that we had, one of them was a dead, what we call the dead presidents. And it was uh, pretty much a gang takeover. Um, they, they invited a, a gang of associates but there was they wanted a leadership change and uh and it was like a subset but they they murdered the, all the other leaders and we rolled up on that there was four of them dead and and then a couple other you know in the bushes shot and stuff like that and uh but you know that was just nothing to get excited about that was just just another shooting in san bernardino wow just another day in paradise yeah and uh, you get geez. i would say you get somewhat numb but it's when you look at it as that's your job um you, you, we would expect to see that. And, you know, unfortunately we have officers that would leave on occasion to go to other agencies. And sometimes these officers weren't our most stellar officers. Sometimes they're viewed as being lazy, but when they went to the other cities and they got exposed to a homicide there, they were the ones in charge and they were taking charge because they knew what to do. And I'd hear back from those chiefs, man, this, you know, this guy came over here, man, he is one of our stellar officers. I said, that guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like, it's like, yeah, he gets to the scene and he knows what to do. He takes charge. And, but, you know, that's kind of like the expected, you know, where I came from and they had a lot of exposure to it. So they, you know, a lot of training, so to speak. And these guys knew what to do. Yeah. Speaking of knowing what to do, let, let's talk about that now. Um, now, did you stay uh, – so I want to talk about – we talked earlier about we're going to talk about a couple things because uh, we found out you have a nexus to the uh, incident um, Alex Collins was involved with with Chris Dorner. The, the, it, people want to say former LAPD guy. The, the, I, you know, I, I hate to say that kind of stuff because he, he didn't even make it off probation. I mean, the guy was not, not qualified to be a cop, but – you were involved in that, and then we also want to talk about the 2015 San Bernardino terrorist attack, the two people. But up until that point, what was kind of your career path? Did you stay in uniform? Did you go to investigations? What did it look like for you going into uh, the before Dorner happened? Yeah, so I uh, and I didn't really have an active – I just was listening to it on the radio. But um, but anyway, so yeah, I stayed in patrol for a number of years, went to some of our you know patrol assignments like problem-oriented policing and stuff like that. And then um, – got into the uh, what we call auxiliary SWAT team, which you know full time. But then uh with with about seven years in, I got into our gang unit, um, which also the gang unit at the time functions as our SWAT team as well. So you have that dual status and uh did our gang unit for a number of years um and the SWAT team a- a- along with that. And then from there I got promoted to detective and uh, at the time the one of the sergeants that they had a vacancy on on the narcotics team 
wasn't very popular and uh, they couldn't get anybody to put in to be his, his number two in that unit. So I got the phone call from the captain and she says, Hey, um, congratulations, you're getting promoted to, to detective and you're going to You've narcotics. You just volunteered again. <laughs> there you go. And so I went direct from the gang, from the gang unit to narcotics to work for that sergeant. And, uh, it was like, Hey, sorry for you, man. It's, uh, you got to go work for that guy. And I'm like, you know, it turned out it wasn't that bad of an assignment. He was okay, <laughs> but we have some funny stories about him, but, uh, He's still alive, so I don't know if I should tell those. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, maybe not. It will embarrass you know, for him. You get those kind of, com- kind of phone calls, and you feel that little bump in the rear, and it's like, <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> but uh, we, I worked what we call our street team, so um, we're more about volume. Um, so we were doing about uh, 10, 15 search warrants a week. Um, so we'd work all week with our informants, go out there and do and buy up the streets, so to speak, is what we'd call it, and then mm-hmm. write the search warrants. And then on Thursday or Friday, start rolling out there and spend all day serving search warrants, knocking down doors and, and stuff like that. And uh, so I got a tremendous exposure. And then we'd sometimes help out our, our majors team and do like rolling surveillances and stuff like that. Which What's your majors team? They would they would look kind of a longer um, length investigation. We're looking to get a higher volume of narcotics, um, you know. So they would work maybe a case for a couple cases over a month, and then they'd get a much larger seizure of, of drugs and narcotics. I mean, uh, d- drugs and money uh, to where we're you know we're doing our search warrants, and maybe we're getting uh, you know quarter ounce of uh, cocaine or you know ten fifteen rocks of cocaine, but uh, but we are our intent was to kept, keep the pressure on those street vendors out there. And, and we do reverses where we do a search warrant on the house and um, take it over. And then we'd have one of our officers work, you know, start selling drugs and, and we'd sell the cocaine to the guy and then we'd arrest him for possession. <laughs> so, and we'd line up, we'd have like 20 people in the back room at this, uh, this house where we're doing this reverse operation. And then when we're done to cart all those guys off the jail for possession. So it was kind of a there fun assignment. The and original then, takeovers were invented by cops. Everybody talked about, we're doing tequila takeover night. No, no, no. Exactly. We, we did the original takeovers. Yep. Come on. <laughs> so we did, you know, we had fun. It was, you know, the, um, a lot of work, a lot of hours. There's, there's times when I lived about uh, 45 minutes away from work and, and we were always about, Hey, no matter how late we're out, whether it's two, three, four o'clock in the morning, um, we're going to be back at work at eight because we ain't missing our overtime. We're not going to come in later because we're going to make sure we get paid all that overtime. So there were a few occasions when I slept in the office because I did the math. And by the time I got home, I'd get 30 minutes of sleep and then have to get back on the road to come back. And I'd rather spend it sleeping in the office. Okay. So, so we, we did that. And, uh, so I did that. And then, um, my uh, buddy of mine on the team that was the the corporal or the detective on the other team decided to test for sergeant. We both uh, got promoted to sergeant and went back, of course, to the to patrol, working patrol um, on our swing shift, which is um, from four to two in the morning. And so that's, you know, the busiest shift, so to speak, for the most part. And uh, worked out for a number of years. And I kind of got into politics, ran for city council and got elected, was a mayor of the city for a couple of years while I'm a sergeant on patrol. And, uh, wow. and then I decided I wanted to get promoted wait, to lieutenant. Wait a minute. What in the <laughs> hell? Well, what did you accidentally ingest one of those rocks that you were, you know, what the hell yeah. possessed you to run for politics and have a busy job in addition to your other busy job? You know, you kind of look around and it wasn't the, obviously the city where I worked, but it was the city where I lived. And you look at these people up there and you go, man, they're doing stupid stuff. I can do better than that. And so I, and you know, I decided I can know how to, 
I know how to run a campaign. And uh, I went out there, did it all, kind of bootstrapped it. And then people kind of noticed. And then all of a sudden, you know, people started donating to the campaign, like what I said, and got elected. And it was a great learning experience. I think I learned a lot about how to manage things and how to, um, you know, how a city functions better. Because when you're a police officer, you really don't see the rest of these functions and know everything that happens in these other departments in the city. But as the mayor of the city, and it was a city of about 80,000, so it wasn't a small city. Um, wow. I got to learn a lot about municipal government and how it works. So, but I worked the I worked the weekends at the police department because I had a lot of meetings and stuff during the during the day and the during the week, and that allowed me that flexibility. But uh, but but you also learn the ugly side of politics and and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, I need to get as far away from this as I can. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I decided not to run for reelection, but also because I was hoping to get promoted to lieutenant, and that was going to change my work schedule and and my uh, commitment to the department because I'm going to have to be committed a little bit more. And I, I did get promoted, um, but in in our when I was still a sergeant, I. I did work uh, IA. I was the sergeant in charge of internal affairs for a couple of years. And so I did that. But I looked at it as more of a learning curve. And it's you get to learn a lot about personnel and how the personnel matters work, which is, you know, truly, if you want to be later, be promoted and be an administrator, you need to learn. You can't just be the knuckle dragger on the street. You need to learn how right. everything works. You got to have a well. I mean, that's one of the best people I saw. They always make for chief is you, you'd find these people have been through command school. They worked every major bureau in their department. You know, they would go apply at another location, but they'd say, yeah, I, I've worked everything, admin, operations, you know, investigations, I, you know, all that stuff. You want somebody who's well-rounded. So yep. for you- Obviously for me, and you know, one thing I was doing all that, and you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I graduated high school early. And I didn't have any college. And when I first started in policing, um, if you had a college degree, they're like, that's going to be the chief because very few mm-hmm. cops. You know, in the federal government, it, you know, it required you to have a degree, but not as a local cop. And uh, so I, I quickly realized I didn't need to go to college. So I started going to um, – I did a program to uh, get some college credits at, at California Baptist University and then started picking up units at local community college. So I was going to school um, on days before I went to work and, uh, you know, to get my bachelor's degree. So I obtained my bachelor's degree while I'm doing all these assignments at the same time. So I would work, like, go to two or three different uh, community college, whichever one had the class I needed that fit my work schedule, and then knocked out my uh, upper division stuff as well. And at the same time, having two very young kids and being married and stuff like that. So... Brings back bad memories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so flash forward, I, I get at that time I get promoted to lieutenant, and uh, then as lieutenant, I run out to the district. So we have the cities divided up into four sections, and uh, each section has a lieutenant that's in charge. And you're kind of like the mini police chief, so to speak. And um, so I had one quarter of the city, and I was responsible for that. And then uh, the next evolution was to to move out of that because I'd done that for a couple of years. And they offered an opportunity. Um, we were going through some budget. The city filed bankruptcy. It's one of those California cities that filed bankruptcy. And we had to cut some staff. But the city of San Bernardino being what it was, they knew they couldn't cut cops necessarily. And they did, but not purposely. A lot of people left the city because um, they didn't know what was going to go on with their job. And they'd rather go mm-hmm. find another job before they got laid off or something. But one of the things they did cut were a lot of the civilian positions. And one of those, they, we had a civilian manager that oversaw records and dispatch. And I always had my mindset that I wanted to promote. That was one of the reasons why I went to college. And uh, I didn't think I needed a degree to, to do it, but that was something that you had to have on paper. Mm-hmm. But um, so they said, hey, we need a, a lieutenant to take on uh, records and dispatch. And so 
I'd never, I'd, and I remember flashing back as a, in the city file bankers, I was a lieutenant and I'd actually applied for a, a position as a chief police chief out in, uh, in uh, LA County at a little city called Hermosa beach. And I moved all the way to the finals on it. But I remember talking to the headhunter and he said, uh, you know, how many civilians have you managed? You know, and cause as a police chief, you're going to have to manage civilians. And, uh, I, I thought about it and I said, well, not very many. And so when that opportunity became available, I thought I'll take that, check that box off in my career path. And there was about 60, um, uh, civilian positions that I, that I managed. And so I thought that was a great opportunity to get that, uh, taken care of and did that. Not any position that anybody ever, the cop ever wants to do is manage dispatch and records. And then it's a whole host of different, uh, problems when you, when you manage civilian employees. But, uh, let's, Let's talk about that for a second, because I know you weren't, in, 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 like, say, directly involved, but you were overhearing the radio traffic. Cause, but we just wanted to make a tie-in back to Alex Collins when we when we when we talked with Alex and the whole Chris Dorner thing. Um, just just kind of give us an idea from the inside, you know, because that was actually the sheriff's office that was dealing with a right. lot. But but the, did the PD get involved? Were you guys helping out? Yeah. So. Uh- San Bernardino actually is the closest uh, city with, and police department to Big Bear. And, um, and so that goes down and, uh, and kind of preceding it, um, if you reflect back, um, Dorner had come through Riverside, which is a, the next major city over from us and where he had shot and killed um, one of the officers and significantly wounded the other. And we knew, well, we didn't know where Dorner went. So everybody's kind of like, in the back of my mind, where's this guy at? Because he's, came through Riverside and which is pretty close to us. And, uh, we didn't know at the time that obviously he had driven through San Bernardino because you have to drive through San Bernardino to get up to Big Bear. Um, and then the events unfolded up in Big Bear and we're listening to it because we share, um, channels that we can both go to that we can over, overhear their traffic. And so obviously their officers were pinned down. So our SWAT team uh, went up there immediately with their Bearcat, Matter of fact, it was used to uh, do some rescues of some of the deputies that were pinned down. To this day, we have that same Bearcat. It has a ding on it that he got hit by Dorner. He shot it. But I'm um, listening to the radio traffic the whole time. And we probably had about, um, shoot, I don't know, 20 um, officers at least up there engaged in that incident up there to different capacities. Um, and it was just, you know, it kind of goes into the ne- you know next um, incident we talked about where you had this just uncontrolled um response from officers that are just heard on the radio. They don't, some officers are driving from hours away, um, not even telling their command staff that they're leaving their jurisdiction and going up there. And it's kind of like an uncontrolled um, mess, so to speak. Well, we've that got really a, exacerbates the command and control problem. Yeah. You got, I mean, you see somebody out there with a gun and all of a sudden you don't know, is the dude on our side? Is he team America? You know, w- what's going on here? Yep. So our chief went up there. I was a lieutenant at the time and, uh, I'm listening to it on the radio and obviously in our dispatch center. And, uh, you know, at the end when, uh, at the final part, and I do have a little bit of a personal connection, Jeremiah McKay. Um, I was at the time a member of, we had a kind of getting our Emerald society, Inland empire Emerald society up and running. And I was a member of that and we'd have monthly meetings and stuff. And, and McKay was our uh, bagpiper and he was the officer that was killed up there. So, yeah. And that that's you guys go back and listen to that episode, man. That is just it's heart wrenching to hear what Alex went through. Um uh, and, and you know, I, I tell you what, burning that shit down with him inside of it still wasn't wasn't enough. I mean, I would have dug his ass up, shot him again, burned him again, and buried him for yep. all the stuff he did. Yeah. You know, and being on the SWAT team, you know, the funny thing is is that 
you have to go through this incremental step before you throw in, you know, go through all these lesser impacting um, tactics to get, you know, people out of a, of a barricaded uh, situation. And at the very end, you throw in hot gas, which burns really hot. It's real intense. It's real dense and usually get people to come out. But you know from that that you're going to start a fire. You know, so you usually stage the fire department to respond in when that fire starts. But I remember listening on the radio, someone, I don't know who it is, that all of a sudden I said, hey, burn this motherfucker down. And, uh, and I said, what did they say? And all of a sudden they say, okay, it's on fire. <laughs> so. Well, but you think about it. So I think back to Chief Brown when he was chief of Dallas and those five, uh, the, 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 the DART and the uh, uh, Dallas officers were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used the robot with an explosive to take out the guy. And people, oh, what do you use? Dude, use of force is use of force. You, you shouldn't right. kill cops. You are bought and paid for. I don't care if it's napalm. I don't care if it's a bomb. I don't care if it's getting your ass run over by a car. Um, it's, it's, if it's time to take you out, it's time to take you out by any means available. Absolutely. Yep. And Alex Collins' episode was 24 for those who haven't heard it yet. It's very empowering. Yep. Very. So, and I didn't know Alex. I've met him um, since then, but didn't know him at the time. But I knew uh, uh, Jeremiah, so personally. And, and you want to talk about a recovery story about what he went through, how, the, the injuries he had, and what he's doing. We met him, like I said, we ran into him again out at the gang conference. The dude, I mean, he f- fucking physically fit as hell. I mean, oh, he, yeah. he, he, nothing slowed him down. He still has days with his drop foot and some injuries and yeah. stuff. But man, it's us saluting him again. Well, let's, let's, because that leads into it. Um, what we want to talk about. So uh, there's going to be another shooting and this one had a lot of impact just simply because of not only the number of people that were killed and injured, but some of the national security issues that were raised because of their use right. of the iPhone. So it's December 2nd, 2015. So um, uh, the, 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 and you know what, we have a policy. We're not going to name the, the, the pieces of shit. So we don't name their names, but it was a man and a woman um, Designate FBI call it a terrorist attack. So, so walk us through that day. What were you doing? What's your role? So What's my, going on? Yeah, at flash forward to 2015, um, I'm now the assistant police chief for the department. And on that particular day, well, let me go back a couple days before that, a few days before. And um, I'm in my office, and my executive assistant comes in, and she says, "Hey, I've got this um, the executive assistant down at the IRC, the Inland Regional Center." is called and she's got this strange voicemail on her on her uh, recording and it's she's she's wondering if she should be concerned about this is all in arabic and uh and she was able to forward it to us so i listened to it of course i don't speak arabic so i can't understand it so i call in one of our sergeants who manages the uh, tlo program for us a terrorism liaison officer program, which kind of gives some officers some training to kind of what to look for in the terrorist stuff and, you know, kind of pass it on to the FBI and some of the federal partners. So I said, hey, can you send this off to the FBI, the JRIC, the Joint Regional Intelligence Center, and uh, see if they can get this uh, translated and let us know if, if this is something we need to be concerned about. And so he takes it and I uh, give it to him and, and it's a couple of days later and I'm like, Hey, is it, have you got anything back yet? He goes, no, let me, let me call him and see what's going on. So he, uh, he finds out, they call him and they say, yeah, it's uh it's from, it's a snippet from an ISIL website and it rough, roughly translated. It says danger, danger, beware, beware. Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. 
In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.